We're in this uh, series called BYOG, Bring Your Own God, which is a look at some of the misconceptions of God as God has revealed himself to us in his word. And this morning is the strangest sermon title I have ever preached from, Helicopter God. In all of my career, I've never preached on Helicopter God. So who in the world sees God as a helicopter God and, and what in the world does this really mean? Well, I think to, to begin our answer to that, we need to answer this question. What characteristic is it that sets a helicopter apart from other modes of transportation? Unlike its cousin, the fixed-wing airplane that must maintain forward momentum or it falls from the sky, the rotary-wing helicopter can maintain altitude while remaining in one place. In other words, it can hover. That's what sets a helicopter apart from anything else. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a minute. This is all going to tie together, I promise, all right? Just trust me on this one. In the early days of our nation's history, some founding fathers were primarily deists. A deist believes that there is or that there was a supreme being of ultimate power who created the universe, the earth, and the people who inhabit this planet. It was this same God who gave humanity the ability to think and to reason. However, once he got everything going, he disappeared. Or, at best, is still around but just not interested and doesn't interact with his creation. In other words, the deist's picture of God is one of a non-participant when it comes to life in this world. In today's culture, there are some parents that parent like a deist sees God. They start the parental ball rolling and then they disappear. They don't interact with their parental creation, with their children, leaving what they created to, well, fend for themselves. The absent, negligent parent is truly a cultural concern today. But at the other end of the spectrum is what we now call helicopter parents. Parents who hover over their children in an overly protective and controlling manner. Author Julie Lithcott Hames shares about the harm that can be created by parents who feel a kid can't be successful unless that parent is protecting and preventing at every turn, hovering over every happening. In other words, folks, the parent who micromanages his or her child's life is in essence saying to the child, I don't believe you can accomplish anything important without me. Consequently, the child grows up with or loses all self-efficacy. And you say, what's that? Well, self-efficacy is the capacity to believe in one's own ability to complete tasks and to reach goals. The ability to think and act on our own. Now, to achieve that, a child must have a certain amount of freedom to dream, to think, to act, to grow, to build, to make decisions, and so on. So am I advocating this morning that parents should be hands-off, not be helicopter gods but or, or, or parents, but be hands-off totally? Well, of course not. Children need oversight, guidance, and protection at various stages. The challenge of parenting is to know when to hover and when not to. 
when to provide the protection and the guidance, and when to give a little bit more freedom for that child to develop wings of his or her own. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. Last weekend, our family made our annual Labor Day pilgrimage to Elsie's home farm. The grandkids had a great time. <laughs> and one of their favorite activities was riding on the farm golf cart around Uncle Alvin's house. Now, I think we have that in the picture, you can see all six of ours and one of their cousins, Haley. And the older kids would take turns driving the younger kids around the house. The young ones were strapped in where the golf clubs would go if, you had a, if it was on a golf course, you see. And so we enjoyed watching them take lap after lap, and the older ones drove the younger ones rode. On one lap, Hayden, who happened to be driving at the time, stopped and got off the cart. We didn't think anything about it, but the next thing we hear is Levi and Taylor screaming from the back of the cart, and when the cart came into view, there was our two-year-old grandson, Mac, pedal to the metal, hands on the wheel, <laughs> barely able to see over the front of the golf cart. Proud as punch, <laughs> smiling from ear to ear. Rebecca took off on a dead run. Max stopped the cart. All was well, but there was a case for a little bit more hovering. All right? <laughs> see, see what I'm saying? The older kids had the freedom because they had grown up. They'd learned. They were responsible. They could drive the cart. Mac wasn't quite there yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? that parenting changes with the different stages, but some parents don't know how to make the shift. And so they continue to hover over their children, not allowing them to make decisions. And we get this image that maybe that's what God is like. The classic Harvard Grant study revealed a couple important insights. Number one, the most successful adults are those children who grew up with chores. So when they get to adulthood, those chores in their early life help them adapt and develop. Children who are protected and sheltered from such activity miss out and they struggle on how to achieve. The number two insight that came out of that study was that true happiness in life comes from the love of another human being, specifically family in those early years. Such unconditional love helps a child spread his own wings and soar. And here's the thing. There can be no true love apart from freedom. The freedom to return that love or that freedom to choose. Now, spiritually speaking, I do not agree with the deist at all. I do not believe that God has abandoned his creation and become a non-participant in the affairs of life. But the opposite and extreme perspective that views him as a helicopter God is also something I don't believe. That God hovers over life in such a way that nothing happens unless God makes it happen. The word helicopter is actually based on the ancient Greek word helix, which means to spiral or to whirl, which is exactly what happens when we try to portray God as a helicopter God. The real truth about God spirals and whirls completely out of control. There are only two places in scripture where I can find God and hovering in the same sentence, in the same context. One is Genesis chapter one, verse two. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the whole surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the second one is in Isaiah chapter 31, verse five. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. 
He will shield it and deliver it, and he will pass over it and will rescue it. Both references are to big picture ideas. The first is the very act of creation itself, big picture. God is very much involved in creation. He is the source of creation. He is the glue of creation. It is God that holds everything together. The second picture is equal. God protected the Hebrew people because out of his people would come the Savior of the world. This is a picture of God preserving his ultimate plan for humanity from beginning to end. These are both appropriate pictures because they show the power of God at work. But I'm here to suggest that God is no divine helicopter parent who is hovering to the point of smothering his children. What we've learned about helicopter parenting is that it can damage our children's lives. It can affect their self-efficacy. God knew long before the studies came out that that was true. God's not going to smother his children. And long before the Harvard Grant study, God knew that purposeful responsibility coupled with divine love would make for a rich life in this world. And remember, remember, true love works only in the atmosphere of freedom. Okay? Tracking with me? Some of you are thinking, when's he going to get to the points? He always has points in his sermon. Sometimes I have three, sometimes I have two, sometimes I have four. I have none this morning. This sermon is pointless. (laughs) So just, just hang with me, all right? I do have a point, but we'll bring this all together. You say, well, but the, but the Bible speaks of God's omniscience and God's sovereignty. Don't those big words dis- suggest or, or maybe even demand that God is a helicopter God hovering over everything, making everything happen? That's a really good question. So how do we answer that? Where does the sovereignty of God intersect with human freedom if indeed it does? Does God view the world as a huge game of chess and we are but pawns to be moved and discarded at his pleasure? Is God hovering over us so that every minute thing that happens in our lives is caused by him? Is that what the sovereignty of God is all about? Well, I don't think it is. I think we need to to perhaps understand sovereignty a little bit better. God's sovereignty is is, is a part of his nature. It's who he is. But I think God's sovereignty might be better understood in the words kingship or lordship. Basically, the term lord signifies the owner of something. Uh, That meaning has been preserved in our term, a landlord. We use the word landlord frequently in our culture. A landlord owns something usually a piece of property uh, or maybe a building, and allows other people to use what he or she owns, usually for a fee. That's the landlord. Owner, but allows others to use it. A landlord is what God is in his sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign means that he is the landlord of all creation. Melchizedek and Abraham in the Old Testament both refer to him as the possessor, the possessor of heaven and earth. Moses proclaims in Deuteronomy chapter 10, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. 
The psalmist echoes that thought in chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And again in 103, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's sovereign rights of ownership and lordship are based on his creative genius. That he and he alone created this world. Dr. Jack Cottrell, who was one of my professors in graduate school, had this to say. He said, some equate sovereignty with causation. And say that the only way for God to be sovereign is if he is the sole ultimate cause or originator of everything that takes place, including events in the natural world as well as human decisions. Since God must be the ultimate cause of even human decisions, then there is truly no free will. But Dr. Cottrell goes on to say, instead of causation, the key word for sovereignty is control. God is sovereign in the sense that he is in control of every event that takes place among create among creatures whether he actually causes it which is often the case or simply permits it to happen instead of preventing it which he could do if he so chose either way god is in charge he's in full control over his creation he is sovereign i also like what john macarthur wrote he says god's sovereignty is all powerful but not always predictable from the human standpoint god is free to do as he would or would not do as he would choose in any given situation and he is not in any way obligated to repeat the same action in connection with any subsequent similar situation because of his sovereign power he's in control god causes all things to work together for good for those who love god and are called according to his purpose romans 8 28 now we we cling to that promise but it's not because we think God causes everything that happens in our life, but we know that God being in control can take all of those things that do happen to us and out of that bring something positive and good. Let me give you an example. The first city in the promised land, after the Israelites came up out of the land of Egypt, they'd wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, they're, they're ready to take the promised land that God had promised. The first city to be conquered was the city of Jericho. And if you remember, God gave them strange instructions on Jericho. March around the city once for six days, and on the seventh day, march around it seven times, blow the trumpets, and watch what happens. Now, that's no military strategy. But when they did it, the walls fell, and then the city was burned, and all the spoils belonged to God. The walls fell outward. As a matter of fact, archaeologists who have unearthed the ancient city of Jericho have found walls that have fallen outward, stones tumbling sort of down the hill like they would if they had fallen outwardly. You see, an attacking army would batter walls inward. You don't pull walls down, you batter them in. But these walls had fallen outward and they were scorched because the city was in scripture claimed to be burned afterwards. And so we see archaeology balancing out what we find in scripture. That was a unique moment. That was where God intervened. God caused those walls to fall at the blast of the trumpets. But the rest of the cities were conquered in conventional means. Was God still in control? Yes. Did he miraculously intervene in every conquest? No. Was Joshua free to, de to devise and deliver his own military strategy in every other case? Absolutely. 
So God's in control, but Joshua is exercising free will. Free will is integral to our relationship with God. Now, folks, I, I, I want you to know, if I believe that God caused every little thing to happen and that our salvation was individually predetermined, that some God chose to be saved and some God chose not to be saved, I would not be in ministry. I would not have spent my life in this career because I would have concluded, what is the point? If God has already decided and nothing can change that, what's the point of preaching? If, if, I don't, if I don't believe that the presentation of the gospel can touch a heart and change a life, then, then why preach? I believe that the New Testament means what it says when it proclaims, Whosoever will may come. And when I preach, I believe that the Holy Spirit uses those words to convict a person's life so that someone will hear and respond. That we have free will, there can be no doubt. How else do we explain our sinful choices? You see, if God controls every minute event in life, then, then I got a problem with my sin. Did God cause me to sin? Because after all, God is causing everything. Well, the Bible says that God cannot sin. That it's impossible for God to sin. That he cannot tempt or be tempted. So how do I deal with this? Whose fault is it when, when I sin? I kind of wish it was somebody else's fault, but it's not. That's on me. It's not on God. So I have free will when it comes to making the wrong choices. That the nature of true love and worship demands free will, there can be no doubt. God is not gratified by worship and love that come from those who have no choice but to worship him and love him. Relationships demand free will and choice. If the relationship is forced, it isn't a relationship. A connection between two people where one is forced to serve against his or her will is slavery. Where one is forced into intimacy against his or her will, it's rape. Where one is forced to stay beyond his or her control is kidnapping. It's not a relationship. And if God is a relational God, then we must be granted the freedom to choose him or reject him. Or there cannot be a relationship with him. And you may think, what, what, are we sure God's a relational God? Oh, Absolutely. We've been created in his image. We are relational people. We gather here. We enjoy being with other people. We love to spend our time with other people because being created in the image of God, we're also relational. Folks, the hermit is the exception, not the rule. And throughout scripture, we see the relational aspect of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's relational. In the New Testament, the, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The most intimate relationship experience between two people, between a man and a woman when they come together in marriage. That's incredibly relational. And when time is over as we know it and eternity begins, we are told that in heaven there will be this great banquet feast, wedding banquet feast to celebrate the marriage of Jesus Christ to the church, his bride. Is that a literal banquet? Oh, I hope so. Man, I, you know, food in heaven's got to be terrific, and it's got to be calorie-free, so I'm hoping it's a real banquet, all right? But whether or not it's a real banquet or this is just a word picture to create the image of a great celebration, either way, it's about an eternal relationship 
with God the Father. So how do we build that relationship right now? Well, we talk to him. We call it prayer. We listen to him. We call it Bible study. When, when God, God speaks to us through his word, we, we change our behavior to better accommodate the expectations and the needs of the relationship, just like you do in any kind of a marriage. We strive to become who God wants us to be because we wear his name. Wearing his name expresses relationship. And none of that makes sense apart from our freedom to choose. Before there can be that first date between two people, somebody has to take the initiative and say, will you go out with me? And the other person has to respond with, yes, I will go out with you. You don't force somebody to go on a date. And I suspect all of us in this room have offered invitations that were rejected and others that were accepted. That's a part of this whole process of beginning a relationship. God took the initiative and has invited us into a relationship with him, but that invitation must be accepted or rejected. God will not force himself upon a relationship with us. And there are attributes of God spelled out in Scripture that only make sense in a mutual free will relationship. Now, the first one is most obvious. The Bible says God is love. All right? Love only, only blossoms in freedom. Apart from freedom, it isn't, it isn't love. Uh, God is jealous, the Bible says. What, part, what value is jealousy if you're controlling every minute thing? God is merciful. M mercy is not needed if God's controlling everything. Uh, God is patient. You don't have to be patient with something you're controlling. God is gracious. You don't need to extend grace if you're controlling everything. If you're causing everything to happen. It is overarching control, yes, but if you're moving the pieces as on a chessboard, these terms about God don't make any sense because you don't need to be patient. You don't need to be merciful. You don't need to be gracious if you're causing everything to happen. That there is free will is indicated by the number of conditional statements in Scripture. You know what a conditional statement is, don't you? It's, it, it involves two words, if and then. If you do this... Then this will happen. We, we use this all the time, you know. If you follow the instructions on the owner's manual, then it will go together properly. Okay? We know if you don't follow the right instructions, you're, you're going to end up with missing pieces and parts. Do you realize how many conditional statements are in the scriptures? If God causes everything to happen every minute moment, then conditional statements make no sense. Uh, let me just share with you a couple. First John 1, 7. John writes, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. That word purifies us and ongoing continually cleanses. In other words, if we walk in the light, then he cleanses us from our sin. Or first John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Without freedom to choose, those statements don't make any sense. If God causes everything, what's the purpose of conditional statements in Scripture? And folks, do you realize, do you realize that the word if is used 1,785 times in the NIV translation in 1,590 verses. Now, not all of those are conditional statements, but many are. They just don't make sense apart 
from freedom. The incredible Bible story of Esther in the Old Testament finds its watershed moment in a conditional statement. Now, maybe you remember the story. It's a great story. If you haven't read it for a while, go home and read Esther. Esther is this young Jewish girl, uh, lady who, who becomes queen of Persia, the, the greatest country in the world at that day and time. But there is a wicked man in Persia who is out to destroy all of the Jewish people. He's the Hitler of the Old Testament. His name is Haman. And he convinces the king that the Jewish people are a threat to his kingdom and that they need to be annihilated. And the king agrees, not realizing what all was in that because Esther has never made it known that she is a Jew. So the king is married to one, doesn't realize it. And so he signs this decree. And then in the law of the Merge and the Medes and the Persians, once you sign a decree, even the king cannot revoke it. And so Mordecai, one of the heroes of the story, Esther's cousin, finds out what is happening. And he sends word to Esther at the palace and says, you need to do something about this, Esther. And Esther is reluctant. Esther doesn't want to get involved. Esther knows that if you go to the king without being invited to, by the king, he might, he might say, you're, you're history. You're, you're, you need to be put to death. You're, you're to be executed. Because that was the law. Now, only if the king would extend his golden scepter to you, were you okay? And so she, she kind of puts it off. She doesn't want to do this. She said, I might die, Mordecai. And Mordecai sends back this message to Esther. Oh, this is powerful stuff. Esther chapter 4, verse 13. He, that is Mordecai, sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Do you realize what Mordecai is saying here? If you remain silent, Esther, God will find another means to save his people. But you won't be blessed and in it. But you have his choice. And maybe, Esther, maybe God has allowed you into this position for just a time as this. The condition rested with her. The choice rested with Esther. And Esther rallied to it. And she went before the king. And, and, and the story is, is, is awesome. The people were spared. It's a great story. Go, go read the book. And by the way, when you see on your calendars the Jewish holiday of Purim, that's the holiday that celebrates the story of Esther. You want a passage that pulls it all together? The relational aspect and the conditional statement? Go to Revelation chapter 20. Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm ready. The invitation is there. I'm knocking on the door. If you want a relationship with me, open the door. If you don't want a relationship with me, don't answer the knock. My conclusion is this, while God is very much in control, big picture, he does not remove our freedom to choose. He is not this chess master. So what's your excuse for not loving him, serving him, following him? Here are some of the top excuses that we use for everything. Oh, I forgot. Uh, I didn't think it was all that important. Uh, I was too tired. Oh, I'll do it later. I'll get around to it. 
I just don't have enough information to really make a good choice here. You know, I couldn't really see the benefit in it for me. Those are the top six excuses that we use. Someday, someday everybody in this room, we will all stand before God and answer for the choice that we made in this world of whether or not we would follow his son or not. Not one of those excuses is going to wash. Not one of them is even going to seem appropriate. According to the conditional statements in scripture, by the way, you don't have a second chance. If you don't choose in this life, then it will be too late to make the choice. And I'm here to tell you this morning, without him, you don't have a prayer. The Vietnam War was the first major war to see the wide use of helicopters. Now, they had been used in other conflicts, but in Vietnam, it was the principal tool of moving troops. The Bell UH-1, nicknamed the Huey, was deployed to the tune of some 7,000 helicopters in the jungles of Vietnam. On this particular model of helicopter, there was a hefty pin or a large nut that secured the rotor blades to the rest of the helicopter. If that pin or that nut sheared off in flight, the body of the chopper would fall. The blades would keep spinning, but it would fall, and there was absolutely nothing that can be done. It was nicknamed the Jesus pin or the Jesus nut. If it sheared off in midair, the only thing left for the crew to do was pray for Jesus. Now, it didn't happen very often. It was a rare experience. But one or two moments like that and you get the name for that piece. That which connects us to life eternal is Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, 16 reminds us that on his robe are written the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. That means he is sovereign over all. He's the one. People, I'm telling you, you lose him and you'll spiral out of control. Lose him, you don't have a wing or a prayer. Lose him, and it's all over. I'm grateful that he is no helicopter God, but that he loves us with an everlasting love and has invited us into a relationship with him. Your choice. Will you choose him this morning? Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.